This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy. We're delighted to be sharing the next hour with you. Uh, I'm Sigmund McZiff and uh, with me this morning is the ever-elegant Anabolic. Hello. Uh, and uh, the uh, urbane but uh, somewhat of an enfant terrible SK. <laughs> and uh, we are... We've got a wonderful show. Um, there's been a lot of planning that's gone into this. Uh, um, uh, I uh, only found out that it was on yesterday. But nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, it's quality, not quantity. Uh, and uh, uh, we have, uh, we're, we're going to discuss a number of things. We are going to, SK is going to talk about the aviator and uh, the fascinating mental health aspects of uh, Howard Hughes, uh, a wonderful, extraordinary character and uh, uh, someone who's well known for his, uh, his uh, uh, unusual, uh, certain unusual aspects of his personality. And there's been a lot going on in the world in this feverish, febrile world that we're living in. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what um, came up on Four Corners during the week, uh, the uh, children in custody in Northern Territory and uh, all of the underpinnings to that. And we're also going to talk about uh, the uh, um, what's going on in the United States with, uh, with Donald Trump. I'm going to say a little bit about uh, the Trump personality and uh, we'll uh, have a little bit of music and uh, so please strap yourselves in as uh, as tall man would say go and get your tea and coffee and uh, or coffee and uh, enjoy it enjoy join us for the next hour three triple ah. Now, anabolics. Hello, how are you? I, I, look, I'm well. How are you? I'm very well. I have to. I have to tell people what happened yesterday. I got. It was my birthday yesterday, and I got a beautiful email, a little message, from from um, from you saying happy birthday, and a few other nice, kind things. And then I wrote back saying thank you very much. See you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I got back a, an effective mess, an instant message that read something like say what, <laughs> what <laughs> tomorrow, what. <laughs> So it was a, a marvelous way to connect, and I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'm I'm delighted that my my goodness and decency, and that my iPhone off. my iPhone reminds reminded me that it was your that it was your birthday. Well, it paid off. We did wing it without you uh, last month, of course, McSiff, because you were, you were away on holiday, were you not? And uh, we had we filled the hour with a special guest. I was, I was, and the special guest was. I uh, was a, a, a practicing doctor who also works as a magician professionally, so he was a fascinating guy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It was very wow. interesting. Yeah. Well, I tried to listen, but uh, I was a little bit far away. And, uh, and, you know, as you can appreciate, his doing magic tricks for a live radio audience was really uh, a high point <laughs> of the show. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yet another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I do have something I need to uh, say just before we start, Mixif. Um, last On last week's show with uh, um, Dr. Mal, there was a discussion about the Victoria Cancer Cent- Comprehensive Cancer Centre and some questions were asked about the connection between that centre and Peter McCallum and I, uh, Dr Mal asked me if I would just read this out because <clears throat> excuse me, they got a, a letter back from um, 
the uh, Peter Mac people, and they've asked us just to clarify exactly the connection. So I'm just going to read this out, what this, uh, what uh, the Executive Director for Communications, Julie Bizzanella, has written to us. She's just said, just want to send a quick clarification about the, the relationship. Peter Mac has recently moved into the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Building, but we are still Peter McCallum. Um, <clears throat> they, we are occupying about 90% of the space uh, and with Royal Melbourne and the University of Melbourne also having research and clinical space in the centre. But patients coming to the VCC building will still be treated by their same Peter Mac team and patient referrals will still be to Peter Mac. The VCC is the name of the building, which I didn't know actually. I didn't realise it was... I thought it was another entity. So the, the VCCC is the name of the building and it also represents a very important alliance of health services, research and education organisations working together to improve outcomes for cancer patients. But Peter Mac is a member of this alliance. So they just asked if they'd clarify that because obviously it might have caused some anxiety for people if they thought they were going to lose their connections with Peter Mac or something. So mm-hmm. that's just um, to finish from la- a bit of business from last week. Done and dusted. Now, and SK, how are you? I've been living the dream, Mixif. I've uh, left my previous uh, employer after 25 years in the public health system uh, as of July the 11th uh, this year. I'm now working for a not-for-profit, running a uh, national dementia program, and I'm living the dream. Much of my day I spend in front of a uh, a video screen doing video conferences with people and having meetings by remote. And the beauty of that is that some days I don't have to wear pants. Which dream are you living? Which one of your dreams are you living? Many people's nightmare, perhaps. uh, No nightmare for me. It's a living reality. I've been wearing a kilt to work for so long now. I I find it very uncomfortable putting on a pair of pants. Other people find it very uncomfortable on a hot day when you're wearing that kilt as well. (laughs) Well, well, that's open to conjecture. Nonetheless, uh, it's an interesting thing that you are living the dream and that you have changed positions successfully after many years because for a lot of people uh, and there was an interesting story uh, I think on uh, could be Radio National during the week about just how terribly difficult it is for for people once they reach the age of 50 and uh, there is there is a change how the duration of time the average person spends unemployed and how much harder it gets over time and yet we know from research around the world that older employees tend to uh, bring a great deal to whatever organization they're working for. And so I think in medicine in particular, um, many of us are very, very fortunate that there has been a career structure which has enabled us to keep on working and being productive. Absolutely. And on that point, I was reading an article only yesterday in an aged care magazine that uh, was talking about a particular factory in the United States that specialises in employing older employees, some of whom reside during uh, the evening hours in residential care. But during daytime, they're wanting to continue to lead fulfilled and fulfilling lives, and they work in this factory. And their their oldest worker is a 90-year-old blind woman who's employed to test the sharpness of needles. And she's been doing that for years, successfully, loves it, and it gives her life meaning. So uh, there are organisations out there that do value the uh, the input and expertise of older employees. But in this uh, youth-oriented culture, unless you've got a career that uh, that facilitates easy re-employment, and you're right, we're very fortunate in that respect, it is very hard for older workers. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, th- talking about work and, and, and anabolics, I mean, we... we we're now confronted with the likelihood of an, uh, a royal commission looking into 
uh, incarceration, detention, uh, youth justice system in the Northern Territory, and perhaps it might extend beyond that. Um, we, there's been a lot in the news, and uh, we can we can extend catch up uh, and and have a, have a chat about that. I'm sure most of us either saw or uh, at the time or have subsequently seen the Four Corners program from earlier this week. Look, it's it's uh, her- it was horrendous to watch. Nobody could watch that and not feel shocked and moved. Uh, I suspect it might be the tip of the iceberg, and I suspect that the connections between this kind of behaviour and the other um, and the the, the um, tough on crime, lock them up stuff that we've heard from a number of governments over the last ten years are connected. This is not this is not happening in a, in isolation. Uh, the people who are uh, at the coalface with uh, in our in our prisons and our youth justice systems are enabled uh, sometimes to feel like they've got carte blanche to do what they want because of a sense of lock them up and throw away the key and uh, community anger, which is sometimes stoked, I think, uh, ill-advisedly by different media outlets. So this is happening in a societal context, which is very interesting to tease apart. And um, I think, I'm hoping that the something will come out of the Royal Commission that might look at that. Not, I mean, we, obviously there might be criminal actions and criminal um, uh, punishments brought to some people who've clearly overstepped in, in every sense uh, their behavioural role, but there might also be some uh, race-related issues, some Northern Territory-specific issues, and also some law and order issues that might come up because I think uh, this is not going to be uh, an isolated um, Incident. This is not going to be an isolated group of people. Our young people are getting into trouble. In Melbourne, we're seeing a number of uh, uh, youth gangs which are receiving same kind of inflammatory response from the media, uh, and they're doing uh, some terrible things. Uh, we need to think about what's leading to these behaviours rather than how we how we contain people. It's containing people to me is is a a last resort um, that shows we've failed as a society. We, sh- we should be thinking of how we can understand these behaviours, look at what's causing particularly our young men to lose hope and to lose direction, and what do we do about that? I think we know. I think we could confidently predict mm. what the, the findings of the Royal Commission will be. Look, for me, there's, there's sort of two issues here, and I think mm. it's potentially wrong to conflate them. I mean, you've rightly raised the question about why are we incarcerating young people in the first place? And, you know, I take the point that there are diversionary programs out there. And, you know, we've had guests on in the last few weeks to talk about diversionary youth justice processes. But uh, they can only go so far. I mean, if you've got uh, a kid or a group of kids who are repeatedly committing potentially serious criminal offences, often there may be no alternative but a period of incarceration. So that's the first issue. But that's quite separate, I think, from the issue of how we treat kids once they're in detention. And that's what the uh, Four Corners story threw into sharp relief this week. Yeah, but there's we're not going to change anything if we simply... Uh, focus on the the process of what happens once the the kids are incarcerated. The rates of incarceration of uh, and, uh, in uh, the indigenous population has increased quite dramatically over uh, um, 
the last 10 or 20 years, despite the fact that a substantial amount of money has been spent. And we're not spending, we don't seem to be spending money wisely. So the government is putting aside billions of dollars, but it's not being well spent. It's not being targeted appropriately. And it's not addressing the, uh, the underlying causes. Sure. But again, to try and separate the two issues, we've known about the very, very high rates of Aboriginal incarceration. And this does, doesn't just relate to you, Aboriginal youth, but Aboriginal incarceration rates across the board are very high. We have known that for years, and that is a separate issue to what has happened to these kids in terms of their being frankly abused whilst in uh, state Absol- care. Absolutely, and, and, and that th- the abuse that has occurred to them in state care needs to be addressed. But it seems to me a pointless exercise if we're only going to look at what happens to them in states in, in, in while they're in the, the care of the state without looking at what are the drivers that are disproportionately placing them in state care. Well, well maybe that's an issue for a separate Royal Commission, because that becomes a, a huge task and one which can't be managed with any great rapidity. I mean, I think if you look at the time uh, that it took to complete the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody, you know, a very protracted process. And the bigger you make the terms of reference, the more complicated you make the task and the longer you delay the implementation of any meaningful change. So I think the way they've set up the current process if the, is they've focused it you know, very tightly on the Northern Territory and the child protection system and the system of youth justice in the Northern Territory and by constraining it that way I think they'll get an outcome earlier and be able to start some meaningful change earlier and that's not to deny the need for perhaps a a broader examination of the issues that lead to Aboriginal incarceration rates in the first place. I think that's a potent argument I think I agree with you and there may be findings from that brief short sharp in-depth look that could be templated across other other jails, which might, you know, lead on to, to more things. But I think one of the things that uh, struck me this week is the role that uh, community alarm plays in these things. Uh, you know, anybody looking at those, these kids, this is, this is over the last four, four or five years we're seeing film from back, you know, four or five years ago. I think the youngest child was 11 when he first, those, one of those first films was made. Um, so this is like five or six years of... Uh, mistreatment, if you like, in this jail and, and no doubt other places as well. It's been uh, hidden. We haven't seen it. it. It's because of cameras that this has happened. It is because of cameras. We've known the figures. We've known the people have reported about it. Um, we've had Indigenous people speaking about it for years. And it's, it seems to me that it's only when this transparent visual uh, information that comes to the general community that an appropriate amount of alarm is kind of sounded. And then things happen really fast. Look, it's a whole can of worms, but this technology is uh, has real potential in opening the door to abuse. I mean, earlier in the evening, and the, the Four Corners show that evening stole the limelight, but on the 7.30 report on the same night mm. was a story from South Australia about uh, an elderly man with advanced dementia being yes. abused in aged care. That's right. And it was only through the actions of his daughter putting a hidden camera in his room that that abuse mm. came to light. So I think uh, the technology's got a great potential to, to open the door on, on abuses, uh, but it's, it's not used in aged care settings for... Uh, you know, reasons that the providers invoke as relating to the privacy of uh, the residents themselves. But, you know, how do you balance privacy considerations against uh, risk of abuse when that's suspected? What do you think about the connection between uh, the alarm sounding with the abuse of these children and our federal government saying that people who are attending refugee services, on off- offshore refugee services, are, are not allowed to report uh, abuse? 
at, at penal, with fear of penalty of incarceration. Did you, I mean, is, is that Look, an interesting connection to you? It's a fascinating connection and it's a crucial question that needs to be asked. You know, on the one hand, the government's saying that it's outrageous that we're uh, abusing our own children in state care mm. uh, whilst they're not allowing the same degree of scrutiny to how uh, you know, the Australian government tacitly approves treatment of offshore detainees, including children. Mm. So what, where, where to from here in terms of the mental health aspect of these kids? That's the, that's the other thing that's come up for me as well. That was the missing piece for me. And I think it, it, uh, I, I see this often. I look, I look after and, and see a number of people who come from the criminal justice system. And one of the things that is striking when you're in the field is that the mental health services uh, are essentially very thin on the ground. There are a few, as you mentioned, for court diversion programs and things like that, but they're nowhere near funded adequately. And it seems to me that our profession, our, the psychiatric professions and the mental health professionals, we have some role. We have some, you know, a role here, to, a role here to play, and some. Uh, what blood on our hands is was that the phrase, a dramatic phrase? But we we don't provide. I don't think enough optimism about the care for these young essentially boys, they're mostly boys almost by far most of them are boys uh, we and yet the rate of incarceration of, uh, of Aboriginal women has uh, has skyrocketed but still still the percentage is still hugely yeah. infant but if you talk to clinicians about kids like this you know kids who are from um, who are running in gangs who have dropped out of school who are committing low-level crimes getting into drug use I, I continually strike a lot of my colleagues sounding incredibly pessimistic about being able to offer mental health support to these kids and I think that's a real failing of our of our thinking on this subject. Well, Anna Bollocks, you know, you've worked in public mental health longer than I have and, uh, you know, it's, it's a sad truth that in order to get a response from a public mental health service, you've got to be pretty much uh, either suicidally depressed or you know, so psychotic that you pose an imminent risk to another person and anybody who doesn't meet that level of severity on a triage scale simply doesn't get service. Uh, and I, I don't know whether it's an exercise in blame shifting that once uh, people such as this are discharged or released from the justice system that they become the uh, the responsibility of public mental health services to look after and public mental health services don't see their degree of need as being as great uh, to, to merit service because public mental health services are massively overstressed. But yes, should there be a responsibility on the justice system to fund the follow-up mental health care and ongoing rehabilitation, if you like, if you, if you want to use that term about safeguarding their mental health and, and, and future behavioural needs uh, within the justice system rather than in the mental health system. Well, would, can, can you imagine what would happen <clears throat> if, if uh, a 14-year-old kid, you know, commits a low-level crime using some, using, with a, you know, drugs in the picture and knock, knock, knocks a window of a car and, you know, takes, takes something from a car. If, if instead of our kind of outrage uh, and our kind of uh, hands throwing in the air, lock them up approach, if we, if we saw this as a, a mental health and a community emergency for this and, and instead of responding with uh, incarceration or punishment, we said, okay, here is a child who's clearly in humongous and precipitous distress who is heading down a one-way street towards incarceration and doom, what would, what would happen if we said we've put, you know, a team around that child, a mental health professional, a housing specialist, a family worker, 
an educational remediation person and said, you know, for a month, this team's going to take care of you. You're going to live here. We're going to find out what you need. We're going to make a plan according to your specific needs. You might be a refugee who doesn't speak enough English. We're going to get you into an English-speaking program. You might be a kid who's come from a place where your family's completely fragmented and suffering from all sorts of mental illness. We're going to get make sure your family gets help and support. Boom, 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 and put everything that child needs around intensively for a month. You could probably do that for the cost of two weeks in jail. You might be able to do that. And uh, I think that <clears throat> one of the... Whilst it was a, a dreadful story, there was um, the letter that Dylan Voller wrote afterwards, which I thought was a testament to some underlying resilience that he had. Now, here was... Uh, um, he, he wanted an apology from Adam Giles, the Northern Territory Chief Minister, but he also wanted to apologise for his own uh, errant ways, and uh, and he wanted to thank the community for their uh, for their extraordinary support. I think there is a, there is an underlying resilience, a resilience factor that needs to be tapped into. We, we, we can go, "Woe is me! This is all doom and gloom. This is disastrous," or we can try and uh, engage with uh, with some positive aspects. And I think I think we need to get away from the. Um, from the, the, the mental health paradigm and the mental illness paradigm, rather, and the um, and the criminal justice paradigm, and see this very, very much in social terms, and m- make appropriate modifications to the society which underpins all of this that has been going on. A couple of points there, Mix. If I mean, anabolics, I take your point about the need for intensive support, but you know, I'm not very optimistic that a month is going to be enough to provide meaningful change. You know, these sort of interventions have got to be sustainable and they're ongoing. You know, Mm -hmm. kids haven't got to this situation overnight. It's taken many years for their lives to deteriorate to the point where they're committing these crimes. Uh, A month, I think, is is, is insufficient. Uh, Beyond that, you know, there's the possibility of putting mental health services into prisons. And, you know, if kids or adults do need to be incarcerated, providing them with the help in a format and for a duration where it can be sustained. There are there are some services, of course, in prison, we should say, but, of course, an intensive uh, period of help would have to be uh, a period of linkage into ongoing, into ongoing uh, supports, absolutely. I have enormous faith in the plasticity of the young male adolescent brain, and I have that because I've seen firsthand how young men particularly can go from a place of darkness and hopelessness to a place of um, contributing, social contributing and hopefulness over very short periods with adequate adequate care and support. I, I think that the adolescent brain is beautifully plastic and, and we I'm should not. never give up hope on it. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Look, I, I wanted to talk a bit about Donald Trump, and uh, I think a lot of uh, thinking people are deeply concerned, and uh, I'm particularly concerned about Trump in a one-on-one bare-knuckle contest with uh, with Hillary Clinton. And uh, and I, th- I, th- I thought, what is it about Trump that is concerning? Um, some have said he's a buffoon, and uh, I think he's not a buffoon. I don't think that that is the issue. I think he's a salesman. And I think that whilst all politicians have got to sell their policies and their platforms, Trump is a snake oil salesman. And uh, uh, he's, he's tapped into 
the despair and rage of swathes of uh, of middle America and uh, and has promised that he alone can fix things and it's sort of um, um, I remember uh, years ago I used to uh, there was that uh, I think the book was called the the, the star bellied sneechers um, uh, uh, which was uh, one of those Books where where you've where you've got somebody coming in and selling something to a group of uh, of creatures and uh, it it's, sounds like a Doctor Zeus book. It's a Doctor Zeus book. It oh, is. it is. It okay. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it is a Doctor Zeus book. And and it's you, you you sell the stars to the to those who haven't got stars because you convince them that that having stars is better. And then you go and sell uh, you you go and sell star removers. To, because you convince them that it's better not to have the stars. So, so people, people are gullible. People will believe and people want to believe. And if you're despairing, um, then you want to actually, uh, you want to have somebody, uh, come along and offer a panacea. And that is what, um, is what Trump says he is. He will fix America. He will make America great again. I mean, no coherent policies, no logical processes, but he'll make America great. And, uh, and that nonsensical, uh, process seems to be resonating with large numbers of people. And, and I, I, it's a sad and tragic indictment that he's come this far, but he has come this far. And this suggests the extraordinary breadth of disenchantment that must exist. And, uh, and the, the, the disenchantment is with the political establishment. And we've seen this more, um, we've seen this with Brexit recently. We've seen it also, uh, um, in, I, I, I think a very, very high protest vote here in Australia recently with, uh, our election. We've seen the elect, the, um, even though it's largely ceremonial, we've seen the election of a right wing very right-wing president in uh, in Austria, and we've seen the election in the Philippines of uh, of Duterte, who is uh, like, uh, I mean, he's he's uh, he's Trump writ large, uh, but in a Filipino context. So, um, uh, so w- there is there is this desire for change. And like all good salespeople, Trump speaks to his audience, an audience who want to believe that he's going to be their salvation. And they conveniently overlook his bluster, his contempt for facts or science, his outrageous comments on Muslims and Mexicans. Um, his audience, they want to believe, and, and they do. Now, there, there is a big question, I think, and that is whether Trump believes what he says. Um, and the evidence suggests that he doesn't, that he, he like many with his personality t- uh, type or style, they play fast and loose with the facts and they shift with the prevailing winds. Whatever works at whatever time is okay. So uh, Trump has been able to adapt his pronouncements as he sees fit. He never, ever takes a backward step. If he doesn't believe what he's saying, McZiff, and he's you know, saying all these things to get elected, but if he doesn't believe them, what could he possibly plan to do once he gets in? Just be like any other politician at that point? I, I can't believe that. He's got to believe a proportion of what he says. Look, I reckon follow the money. If he gets in for four years, what, is, what does he... What? 
Why does he care what happens under his administration? He's got a guaranteed, you know, uh, he's got money for life. He's got his family's got money for life. He's got prestige for life. He's got a title for life. Uh, he's not. I don't think he's thinking beyond. I don't think he's thinking much beyond that. He's got. He's got. His privilege will be encrusted. So is it just to prove to himself that he can do it? Well, it's an interesting question because a few weeks ago I made a prediction to some of my friends that I thought that we might see him stall at the last barrier. I reckon there's still. A possibility and I've got no reason to back this up with any facts at all but his ability to fail is almost zero. He doesn't like failing. His, his idea of personal failure would be horrendous to him. I'm still wondering whether some of these calls to Russia to hack into emails and all these things I'm still wondering whether that he's pushing the edge bit more by bit more until somewhere along the line he crosses the line and someone says you can't run and he's going he's gonna to plead I would have won if I had of, but I can't. I'm just wondering whether we're going to see him stall at the last minute and and claim, you know, they're all again me and yeah, I, I and fall at the gate. I, I, <laughs> just, I, de- I desperately hope you're right, but I think there are uh, such profound uh, narcissistic and psychopathic elements in his personality that uh, make it uh, uh, self-reflection is uh, is not apparent. Uh, there, there is just this. There's this. Um, uh, he's like a runaway train now, and his. It's not just him now; it's his supporters. So he has galvanized so many people, and the the extreme right in America, um, the you know the David Dukes, the Ku Klux Klan, the um, uh, this the, he is their man. Um, he might Fox, Fox News, Fox News. I mean, uh, Limbo, all of the all of the right wing ultra-conservative commentators um, are pouring out their bile and filth 24 hours a day. And this is galvanizing more and more the uh, their audience. What do you think about the theory that's been put forward that some of what we're seeing around the world is a reaction to the crumbling of... Uh, white privilege uh, in many of these countries, uh, white, particularly white male privilege. It's interesting that he's up against a female uh, opponent. Uh, in, in If Hillary wins, we're going to have a photo opportunity within a few months of seeing the, um, the head of state of America, Britain and Germany standing next to each other, three of the biggest economies in the world, and they're all going to be female. Now, when it was all male, nobody even noticed. <laughs> but they, they are, they, as always, when it's female, people do genderize and notice and it's going to be an extraordinary uh, spectacle extraordinary and there are a lot of I think we're seeing in, in Britain in Brexit we saw the inv- invoking of anti the anti-muslim you know the Muslim hordes coming towards us the you know the rise of black power the there's a, and we're seeing that in um, in Trump's rhetoric too his anti-muslim stance throw the black protesters out of the audience they should be beaten up they used to be once upon a time they were beaten up this this rise of this horrendous anti-non-white uh, rhetoric. Uh, do you think it could be a reaction to the sort of the the, 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 the beginnings of the end of male privilege around the world, white male privilege around the world? Well, well I, th- I think there's an element of that. I think there's. I mean, it, it comes across as a rage against the night. It's standing there and trying to hold back the tide. Uh, and uh, there is a. Uh, it, one would hope that there's a self-destructiveness involved. I mean, if you. Compare, for example, the um, the reasoned, measured approach that uh, that Angela Merkel takes in Germany, where they are confronted with very, very significant issues. Uh, she is a steady hand. 
if you look at what Clinton, Hillary Clinton appears to offer, it is the, um, the possibility of a steady hand against uh, um, an out of control um, um, uh, Trump opponent. Um, Theresa May uh, seems to be steady. There is, um, we, we have a contrast. Uh, in in leadership styles, it's it's very bold and it's very out there and it's very in your face. And uh, one of the problems I think with uh, the American electoral system is that th- there th- these angry white males are moved to vote, and the proportion of angry white males who are going to vote, one has to stop and think: Are they going to be because they they still they they are the majority? Um, even though they're very, very sizable black and Hispanic minorities, are they going to be so successfully galvanized to vote that, that this goes the way that none of us really want it to go? I think it's entirely possible. I mean, they're, they're, they're the Limbaugh's audience, they're, they're the Fox audience, are, are hugely skewed towards that young male group. Um, the, the, the figures for Trump in uh, amongst women, uh, Hispanics and black uh, voting audiences are, are way skewed towards Clinton. So it's, I, think, I think this is a real, uh, you know, real, a real point of change in, in history that we're seeing that's being fought against. And it's no surprise to me that we're also going to... I don't think there's a thinking woman in the world who isn't bracing themselves for a, a, a backlash because it's, it's already, I see it's already started. We We've had uh, uh, the trolling that's happening against females who are daring to put themselves into the commentariat space at the moment is horrendous. I don't know whether you guys follow this, but there have been some uh, successful court cases even this week uh, against trolls who have been just making disgusting comments online and in you know rape rape comments rape threats murder comments it's all genderized and it's uh it is it's happening all across the world we're seeing in the Sudan, we're seeing rape as a weapon of war used more than it's ever been before. It's, yeah, it's, there it was, is happening. We're getting a backlash. There were some very, very unsettling aspects to the Democratic National Convention, to the, the Republican uh, Convention every time Clinton's name was mentioned, the lock her up, mm-hmm. um, uh, very much harkened back to some of the, some of the awful uh, responses we had here when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister, that, that gender-based antipathy. Ditch the bitch. Ditch the bitch. So it, it, it is, uh, it's deeply concerning. Um, uh, one hopes that it's just a blip in the, uh, in the, com- uh, in the overall commentary. But uh, I guess we're going to have to wait and see. So we've got some, uh, we've got some interesting times. Yes, welcome to the apocalypse. The apocalypse, yes. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. SK. Yeah, The Aviator, a Martin Scorsese film from 2004 starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Howard Hughes and Kate Blanchett, who played Catherine Hepburn throughout the film. Fascinating character, Howard Hughes, and the film only deals with a, a relatively brief portion of his life between his 20s and his early 40s. It sort of starts with his early filmmaking years and then mostly goes on to focus on his role in designing and promoting new aircraft. 
I mean, Hughes uh, spent fortunes on designing various experimental aircraft, many of which he flew himself, and he ultimately uh, went on to found Transworld Airlines as a rival to Pan Am Airlines, which at the time was owned by uh, a competitor of Hughes's who he despised. So uh, mm-hmm. imagine the enmity that led him to, uh, to set up a rival airline in terms of TWA. Hughes also had many women in his life, including a long relationship with Catherine Hepburn, but from an early age, he was also germophobic and he would have severe bouts of mental illness, including but not limited to uh, severe symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder. In many ways, this film is the story of how a young Howard Hughes transformed a small fortune into a massive one. Uh, he was the son of a Texan inventor who in- invented uh, an amazing drill bit that revolutionised the oil industry. Uh, his father died when Hughes was 18, leaving him with 75% of the Hughes Tool Company. Hughes himself then quickly moved to Los Angeles and he became a Hollywood film producer where he helped launch the career of uh, a number of starlets at the time, including Jean Harlow. Jean Harlow was the subject of one of the best put-downs of all time. Uh, she met uh, actress Margot Fontaine at one stage. and uh, Ballerina. Oh, the ballerina, yes, yes. And and to annoy her, she kept calling her Margot uh, (laughs) repeatedly and uh, Margot Fontaine responded, the T is silence, Jean, like it is in Harlow. (laughs) 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 So Hughes produced and directed a number of films. He directed the classic war film Hell's Angels. He was the producer on The Jazz Singer and also the original version of Scarface uh, and uh, eventually went on to own RKO Pictures, which was a big uh, movie house at the time. He simultaneously branched into industry after industry, including aviation and, uh, during World War II, defence. And uh, it was his activities during World War II that led him to create the uh, the famous or infamous uh, Spruce Goose, which was the largest uh, aircraft that had ever been built and was constructed largely out of plywood, as yeah. I understand. It only ever made one flight and was famously parodied, as was Hughes himself, in an episode of The Simpsons uh, where Monty Burns became a, a parody of, of Howard Hughes, essentially. <laughs> After the war, his business expansions continued. He developed uh, an electronics company that was integral to the subsequent development of the satellite technology, and uh, he owned several Las Vegas casinos as well. The film itself sort of opens with shots of Hughes being bathed by his mother as a boy, and his mother was telling him that he was not safe from disease, uh, giving the viewer clues about a strong family history of OCD. His mother was, was germ-phobic, and in fact he had a number of other relatives who suffered from obsessive-compulsive disorder. It also, I guess that scene illustrates the possible influence of early parenting influences in the subsequent development of this, the disorder, so not only genetics but the influence of uh, environment on the development of symptoms as well. We see Hughes later in the film, after an aeroplane accident, sinking into a deep depression, and at that point in, in the movie he shuts himself in his screening room and grows ever more paranoid and detached from reality. And terrified of germs, he uh, takes to urinating into dozens of empty milk bottles, which he sort of catalogues uh, obsessively as well. Towards the end of his life, uh, in actual fact, Hughes did 
uh, for an extended period of time uh, lying naked in bed in a darkened hotel room, uh, which was the closest he came to considering a germ-free environment at that time. And during that stage of his life, he took to wearing tissue boxes on his feet to protect them from germs, and he burned his clothing if somebody near him uh, became ill. So really quite disabled by his phobias and his obsessions. A significant focus of the film is on, on Hughes's contribution to the aeronautical industry and his involvement in the birth of modern aviation as we know it. And this is where his genius interacted with his symptoms, if you like, to produce uh, a positive outcome. It was his meticulous attention to detail and extreme perfectionism coupled with his technical vision and his wealth they're shown in the film as transcending the limits that uh, many people have imposed on their lives by diagnosis of OCD. So it's a film that can demonstrate just what can be achieved despite such a serious mental illness. In contrast to uh, his business activities, his, his controlling behaviour uh, flowed over into his personal life as well. It, it caused him huge difficulties in relationship uh, problems. Uh, his OCD behaviour was in some ways facilitated by his ability to employ staff by virtue of his huge wealth to carry out his compulsions on his behalf, which is almost a unique uh, way that he had in terms of adapting to his illness just facilitated by his great wealth. For example, on one occasion, this isn't shown in the film, but in real life, uh, he wrote a staff manual on how they should open cans of peaches including directions for removing the label, scrubbing the can down until it was bare metal, washing it again, and then pouring the contents into a bowl without touching the can to a bowl. So extreme OCD, but facilitated by his staff. This all took place in the 40s and 50s? Was this when it was at its, at its peak for him? Pretty much. In the post-war years, there seemed to be a particular turning point, and again, this perhaps illustrates how OCD symptoms can be exacerbated by times of stress. He crashed one of his experimental aircraft, I think, in the early 1950s and was hospitalised, and following that uh, experience, his symptoms worsened dramatically. But, yeah, the 40s and 50s primarily. So psychiatry was still in its infancy then, but do you think his wealth actually prevented him from getting help as opposed to enabled him to get help? I mean, I think it was if he had been anybody else anywhere else at that time, he would have probably been hospitalised, you know, when the tissue boxes went on the feet. And do you think he was able to kind of pay his way around and, you know, he had so much money, lived in a hotel? Do you think he was actually blocked from getting care? Well, I guess he could have compensated for uh, the lack of care by making modifications to his environment that his wealth facilitated. But yes, perhaps if he'd been the... Uh, the, the female spouse of a middle-class American man, he might have been committed at that time. But, you know, it would take a brave man to have committed Howard Hughes, I gather. Uh, his obsessions flowed into the utilisation of his wealth as well. At one stage in his life, he began purchasing all restaurant chains and four-star hotels that had been founded within the state of Texas. You know, a bizarre compulsion. Uh, close friends of his also reported that he was obsessed with the size of peas, uh, one of his favourite foods, and he used a special fork to sort them by size. In November 1966, so we're moving into the 60s now, uh, Hughes arrived in Las Vegas and moved into the Desert Inn. 
and basically refused to leave. And because of his refusal to leave the hotel and to avoid further conflicts with the owners, he bought the hotel in, in 1967. And the, the eighth floor of the Desert Inn became the nerve centre of his uh, corporate operations and he resided in a penthouse on the ninth floor. And between 1966 and 68, he bought a number of other hotel casinos in Vegas, including uh, a small casino called the Silver Slipper. And he bought the Silver Slipper Casino purely and simply so that he could have its trademark neon silver sign removed because it was visible from Hughes's bedroom and apparently kept him up at night. <laughs> After Hughes left the, the desert in many years later, uh, hotel employees discovered that the drapes in his room hadn't been opened for the nine years that he lived there and had rotted through. The most severe episode of his OCD is uh, illustrated in the film uh, towards the end in a sh scene that shows him living basically as a naked recluse in his screening studio and his nakedness at that point in the film it sort of echoed the image we had earlier in the film from him being uh, bathed naked by his mother being washed clean of germs. So for anybody who's interested in learning more about obsessive compulsive disorder, this film does provide a tremendous insight into the thoughts and compulsions that can cause sufferers so much distress. And it also illustrates the, the comorbidities, the other illnesses that uh, often lead in, lead, are led into from a background of OCD. In Hughes's case, in particular, uh, depression. He also suffered uh, problems with chronic pain following multiple uh, aeroplane accidents and became addicted to opiates. And, you know, famously, he was reported as uh, only cutting his fingernails once every year, and that gets back to the Simpsons depiction where uh, Mr Burns has got massively long fingernails. And some authors have speculated that that refusal to have his fingernails cut did, in fact, represent uh, an extreme sensitivity to pain that he was left with, a neuropathic pain following his multiple uh, uh, aviation accidents. But he was addicted to opiates as well, and we see that as part of the film as well. So the aviator also helps us to uh, empathise with what it might be like to be in a relationship with somebody who's severely affected by OCD because you see the impact of his behaviours uh, on the various women in his life, including one scene where you know, Catherine Hepburn visits him in his hotel room where he's collecting his own urine and you know, she, she tries to reason with him and to, to salvage something from this once great man but, but ultimately fails. Fortunately, and you alluded to this, Anabolics, you know, our, our understanding of OCD has grown significantly in the decades since uh, well, both The Aviator was filmed and certainly since Howard Hughes lived. I mean, arguably, if he had received treatment for his OCD in the 50s and 60s, that treatment is likely to have been somewhat ineffective mm -hmm. because, you know, analytic treatments were still the forefront of, mm -hmm. uh, of psychiatric therapy at that time and, and mm -hmm. frankly, I'm not convinced that they do anything for OCD. McZiff as an analytically oriented therapist, perhaps you'd disagree with me? No, no I don't disagree with you at all. In fact, I, I, I think that the people who came along uh, with um, fully f uh, fledged OCD into analytic therapy uh, have uh, tended to do very poorly. Mm -hmm. And the more obsessional someone is in terms of their makeup, it, it's... It, it hinders therapeutic progress. It actually makes it harder. So even people who don't have OCD. So I think uh, the jury's back in on that. Yeah, okay. How did he die? He died uh, apparently during a plane flight 
I think it was in 1976 or thereabouts. He was a passenger on a plane being moved from one country to another at the time and he died in transit and uh, he was uh, noticeably malnourished. I think his weight at death was about 42 kilos. He was suffering from a number of diet-related metabolic disorders at the time but, you know, died, uh, you know, dressed in rags and filthy and in terrible circumstances, despite his vast wealth, so money certainly mm-hmm. isn't the answer to everything. Mm-hmm. Do you think there was, um, you know, there's, there's a very significant crossover with, between OCD and hoarding? Um, now, what do you hoard when you're a billionaire? Um, was there a hoarding component, do you think, to his presentation? Well, there was, and uh, you raise a very good point because when we think of OCD classically, we think of uh, the classic obsessions of germ phobia, which he certainly had, so compulsive washing behaviour and going to great lengths to avoid contamination. So we saw that in the film. The other classic compulsion in OCD is a checking behaviour. You know, have I left the the door unlocked and having to go back multiple times to check? But in a a significant proportion of OCD sufferers, probably as high as 30 to 40% of them, there's a a hoarding compulsion that's present as well. And when you think that OCD affects perhaps 2 to 3% of the population, uh, 30 to 40% of them means about 1% of the population have a hoarding compulsion. And arguably you see this in the films from the way in which he, he hoards his urine in mm. uh, used milk bottles and obsessively arranges these in rows and so forth. He did, uh, what he was known to hoard tissue boxes as well. He went through a lot of tissues and would meticulously arrange the tissue boxes. Arguably, you could view the behaviour as purchasing every uh, restaurant and four and a half star motel at the yeah. and founded in the state of Texas as being a hoarding behaviour as well. So perhaps wealth does facilitate the hoarding of more extreme artefacts. And, you know, hoarding disorder, it's usually defined in terms of collection of objects that seem to have limited objective value. Uh, certainly that's not the case if you're hoarding hotels and motels and business assets, but the uh, bottles of urine and the tissue bo- uh, boxes certainly. And, and the squalor too. Despite his immense wealth, he died in really squalid circumstances. Look, he did, and one of the things that occurred to me whilst I was viewing the film and reading about Howard Hughes online as, as researching this, you know, I've got an interest in squalor as well, as you mm. might know, McZiff, and a lot of the behaviours did, did accelerate significantly following a very severe crash that he had whilst flying one of his planes. And it was from that point onwards that he seemed to degenerate into squalor. And one of the things that we now know about people who live in squalor is that they often have uh, frontal lobe damage. Yeah. And when you think about the sort of head injury that you're likely to sustain in a plane crash, you know, it, it's quite possible from my perspective with the benefit of uh, the retrospectoscope that he might have suffered a frontal lobe insult at that time yeah. that either accelerated his OCD behaviours or caused him to neglect his environment. Uh, people who live in squalor will often hoard rubbish as well. So. Mm. so these days, if analytic psychotherapy doesn't have a fabulous outcome, what do people use these days to help them with OCD? Okay, well, we've, we've now learnt to view OCD as a brain disorder rather than a psychoanalytically based disorder. So there's a role for both medications. There's some evidence that serotonin, a neurotransmitter, is abnormal in OCD. So the uh, antidepressant class of the specific serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs are commonly used. 
but they work best when combined with various forms of psychotherapy. And there's a proportion of people where medication alone will fix the symptoms, but there are very high rates of relapse then when the medications are stopped. So there's cognitive behavioural therapies have been developed in the past couple of decades that are really very effective in treating these symptoms using principles of exposure to the feared stimulus like a contaminant and prevention of the response which is for example the hand washing behavior and you know uh, three quarters of people are helped significantly by this sort of cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, cognitive therapy a a variant on the on the theme is very effective for mild ocd uh, in its own right mixif well that is absolutely fascinating i mean i must say um i was always quite taken by Howard Hughes and uh, uh, in, in the same sort of, I mean, some of these extraordinarily wealthy characters, their personalities are so engaging and fascinating and, uh, and uh, it's wonderful to hear that. It also raises the point, uh, it's very well made, that, you know, if, if you're rich and doing strange things, you're eccentric. If you're poor Absolutely. and doing strange things, you're crazy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, from three eccentric psychiatrists here, um, uh, we look over at the normal Kent, who's going to hand over to <laughs> the scientists who uh, will take over uh, very, very shortly. Thank you very much, uh, Anabolics, for your insights and SK as well. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you. We'll be seeing you later in the month. Uh, for uh, the Radiothon and we look forward to all of your support then. Have a wonderful Sunday and uh, it's over to the scientists. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au